the heart of this series that we've been on for a while. Right? The, the whole idea was that we've always known that the way we're doing church, if churches are supposed to create numbers, then churches are doing great right now. Attenders and givers and volunteers, if that is how we measure a follower of Christ, then we're doing pretty well right now. But I think at the heart of this series has been that we know that this is not what Christians are called to do. This isn't what the church is to be turning out. Volunteering is terrific. Giving is very important, right? Attending and, and being in this space to prioritize time to grow is important. But is this what a church is here for? And so there's not many pastors who would argue with me and say, a church is to make disciples, meaning code word for someone who literally tries to live like Jesus lived. It's the idea. But how do you measure that? How do you measure if you're doing a good job with that? We, uh, probably about three, four years ago, uh, the elders and I, Pastor Zach, we, we sat down to, to, to figure out how do we measure if Grace Church is doing well. At that time, the attendance numbers were great. Uh, the offering was great, and everyone in the city was like, man, Grace Church is doing so amazing. Look at the cars and their brand new parking lot. They are killing it. But we felt like something was missing. We felt like we were off. We were hitting the numbers that we were told to hit, but something felt off for us. So the question that we posed was, how do, we, how do you actually measure whether or not you're making disciples? How do you measure faithfulness to Christ? I mean, we sat on that question for weeks and months, and of course, uh, if you've ever been in a discussion with me and Pastor Zach, we love to go on uh, rabbit trails for a very long time. We tried all sorts of different ways to measure it. How do you figure out if someone's growing? Because what we're really asking is this, what kind of scoreboard are Christians supposed to live by? In life, we train our kids to win, right? In school, do you root your children on to flunk every year, to get Fs? Is Fs what your family worships? Anybody? Amen? Hallelujah. I once had to retake freshman year. You know why? Because I didn't go to school. Amen? Hallelujah. Passed all the tests, A's. But when you don't show up to class, they don't care, do they? But we... <laughs> We celebrated in the summer when I got to go back to school all summer. It was terrific. <laughs> and then as a senior, I got to take Algebra 1 with a bunch of freshmen. That was fun too. <laughs> but is that what we worship? Is that winning in school? Do we want our kids to be held back and have Fs? No, no, no. We want our kids to be winners. We want you to be at the top of the class, right? If you're a teacher, you know, they say in the studies that the top of the class always sits in the T. So since we have no chairs in the middle, in this classroom, it'd be anyone who's right here and on the outsides. You guys are the winners. Yes, you Mondays. You guys would be the A students in the class, right? Now, if you were going to be uh, someone else who wasn't the A student, you would always sit on the sides and you would find a way to sleep holding a pencil so that when the teacher would talk to you, you would drop the pencil and wake up. Just a little note there for the students in the room. If you want a little tip, that's the way to do it. And so what happens in this, right, is we don't want that. We want our kids to win. We want them to be the best, to be smarter, be better, get better grades, right? When you play sports, if you've had children play sports, if you've played sports, if your, your, your family or friends have played sports, did everyone celebrate when you said, guess what? I won't even be on the field once the entire season. I'm going to be on the bench. High five? Yeah. 
How often does this happen? When you get an amazing job and they tell you this is the lowest paying job, the least important job in the entire company, and we think it's perfect for you. Is this a moment for celebration for us? Of course not. Because we only understand if we're doing well in life, if we're winning. We have scoreboards, right? There's ways that we keep score, keep track. How much money is in my bank account? Am I winning in this game? How many toys do I have? How many bills do I have? How many friends do I have? We keep track of everything. We keep score. Now, for Christians, the question says, how do Christians keep score? How do we know if we're winning or not? What's funny is that not much has changed. When you see Jesus, and he's speaking to, to crowds, and the crowds begin to get angry at him, he's typically assaulting one of the ways that they are measuring who is in, who's out, who's winning, and who's losing. You see him sitting in this room watching people put money, watching people give. And you would think that he would count, he would, his scoreboard would work just like everyone else's scoreboard would work. Look at this person. Look how much they gave. Yeah. And of course, the attention of, of Jesus doesn't go to the, the same people. The way that Jesus keeps score isn't the way that the rest of the people in the room keep score. When it comes to holiness, and there's these people who just who haven't, haven't done anything wrong, they've kept all of the laws. They're the ones who go to church every single Sunday, and they volunteer, and they serve, and they do all the things on the outside. They're doing great. They're really kind and nice, and like they won't ever say anything mean to your face. And these are the people that Jesus calls them out. What's going on in your heart? What's taking place in that brain of yours? What are the things happening that no one else can see? Because this is where I keep score. Let me summarize the New Testament for you. Every way that people have always wanted to track if they're winning with God or not, Jesus takes it and flips it upside down. And it gets even worse than that. And then seemingly, even with his scoreboard, people who should be doing well, there's always more for them. His own disciples, who seemingly are doing all the things right, have left all of the stuff, they always find themselves being challenged to do different things. There's this passage with Peter and he's trying his best. He, he has left his family, his occupation, his financial well-being. He's left everything he ever knew for Jesus. And he thinks he's doing well. And he turns to Jesus and says, hey, but what about that guy over there? And of course, he's pointing to John, the one that all the disciples couldn't stand because he always found a way to just get real close to Jesus. And, and, and Peter was doing everything right. He was getting every single thing right, but... What was off? And the response of Jesus was, Peter, feed my sheep. Now to us that, you know, it's about a verse we've heard before, but what is he even talking about? What I want to kind of save you the study, because again, to, to really elaborate, I have to do six weeks just to explain what I'm talking about, but I'll simplify it to this. The only scoreboard that matters for every individual Christian and every individual church and every family, every Christian-owned company, whatever it might be, if Christ is over that thing, 
There's only one scoreboard which matters, and that scoreboard is called faithfulness. The reason that faithfulness is such a difficult scoreboard is that faithfulness looks different for every single person. It's based on our our wounds, our hurts, our personalities, our desires, our fears, our dreams, our goals. It's perfectly tailored to us. It's a scary scoreboard to be truthful. We could do all other things that other people would pat us on the back for. We could score high on any other spiritual holiness, religious scoreboard. You could spend hours and hours in prayer. You could literally study the scriptures your entire life. There are people who do this. You could memorize the entire Bible. It was common practice in the context of Jesus. You could give all your money to the poor. You could go on a missions trip to South America and give your life for the gospel. You could do any of these things and still be missing it. How how is that possible? See, faithfulness is a scoreboard that only can truly be known between us and Christ. If you guys have your Bibles, let's go to Luke, chapter 9, verse 23. I plan to read this in the uh, NIV. We'll start there. But the context of this verse, before I jump into it, is something you've heard a lot. You've heard sermons preached on it multiple times. The question was posed by Jesus, who do they say that I am? And of course, they respond, and, and then, of course, it transitions, and Jesus begins to hone in to them. No, 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 no. What I'm really after is, who do you say that I am? And if you could kind of see the bubbles, you know, the thought bubble from the head of Jesus, what he was really saying was, no, 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 how do you see me? Not what you say, not what's on the outside, but on the inside. How do you actually see me? What do I really look like to you? What type of person am I really? What type of personality? What what type of temperament? What makes me happy or makes me angry? What do I want? What do I despise? What do you really know about me? This kind of sets the stage for this passage, and we've all heard this. But what's beautiful about this is that all of these disciples are throwing answers, and they're all getting it wrong. You know, obviously, they're all missing it. But here's the response of Jesus uh, to them. And then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life from me will save it. But what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, obviously, there's a lot in there. We'll unpack it. First of all, I'm not sure if you've ever read this passage in context. There's a question, who do you say that I am? There's wrong answers. (laughs) They say this. They say that. I think this. And here is a solution from Jesus. Here is a pathway from Jesus, meaning if you really want to know who I am, here's the way to this. If you want to be 
my disciples. And that word means a lot. It means more than it does in English. In a Hebrew cultural context, to be a disciple isn't just to study under someone. The idea of to be someone's disciple was if I was chosen to study under some great teacher of the law, at some point, it wasn't just that I would think the way they would or I would know them deeply or we've had all this time together. The idea of, of being a disciple of someone's was that you would literally take their place. Man, that's, that's a lot, right? You would become them and then you would go beyond them. Now, does this make sense when you hear these, these phrases from Jesus you will do greater things than I did. You will fill my shoes. You will embody everything that I'm about, and then you will go beyond me. And so I'm telling you today that churches are meant to create people who have committed their lives to filling themselves up, to stepping into the shoes to living and thinking and feeling and reacting, prioritizing what this human being did, this incarnate God. We don't have time to go into all that. So how do you measure that metric? How do we measure if people are becoming Jesuses, right? Well, they gave more money this week. I think we're on the track, right? Well, they came one more Sunday a month. We're almost to being like Jesus. Amen, hallelujah. I don't see your faces. You better be smiling. That's pretty funny. I want you to see a few things here. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to embody me, whoever wants to have me literally fill them all the way through and through, that they would look and feel and sound and think and prioritize and love and hate the things that I love and hate, this person must do this. The first thing they must pick up, they, they must first deny themselves. Okay, gracious. You're right. I should have preached this in, in a whole series. They must first deny themselves. To, to take. How do you ever become someone else if you already have a self? I could just preach on that for half an hour. How do you ever become someone else if you already know who you are? The first thing we do is we lose our idea of who we think we are. The second thing we do is we pick up our cross. If you see the word there's there, of course, but it's a personalized cross. I would hope that my cross is not as tall as Roy's cross. Amen, hallelujah. It's personalized, right? It's, it's just for me, right? It's built. It's a way of waking up every day that's built just for me to, to, to bring out my insecurities and my fears, to press the pressure points of the things that I am most afraid of, of all the areas that bring out the, the worst in me, the parts of me that are not willing to trust or to grow or to love, this cross will press every one of those things because it's made just for me. And the next thing that's going to happen is as this thing begins to just to tear away at this person, this Self that I am now trying to deny. I'm taking this self and I'm pushing it out of the way to make room for Jesus to show me who I am, to remake me. In this process, I realize something. 
I realize that I'm not just losing myself. I'm losing everything that I thought my life was. And now I have another choice. As it says in the passage, I have to choose. Am I willing to give up everything of my life that I thought I had, I cared about, I built, I am, this is who I am? Will I protect this life from the cross, from Jesus, or will I hand it over? Will I give up the identity that I have for myself to find Christ in its place? So I have some three stages for you. Today is kind of odd. I I decided to, tonight I feel like I need to teach more. And teaching is not my strength. Pastor Zach is a, a much better teacher than I am. I'm a much better preacher, meaning I like to get excited about stuff and try to get you interested in it. But tonight I've got some things I want to teach you. But here's the caveat of these three steps I'm about to teach you, three seasons or, or three phases of what it feels like to know that you are becoming a disciple of Christ. I warn you that if you're not in it yet, these things will go right past you. It might not be valuable to you right now. And I don't mean that to criticize or to um, demean. But there is an experience of what it is like to lose yourself in Christ, to discover a whole new version of the world and of yourself and of things that you now love and hate and desire and dream for that, that once before were not even on your radar. But when you get there, when it's time, because it doesn't need to be forced, it doesn't need to be rushed. I've learned this about God. He, he tends to be very patient to wait for us. When you're ready and when you begin this experience, I want you to understand this. I, if you're able, I want you to find this sermon. I want you to find these notes. Um, they will be helpful to you when this process starts. Here's the first process, the first experience, the first phase or season, whatever word you want to use, of what it feels like when you begin to become a disciple of Christ. Not just have trust in him, not just believe in him, not just you know attend services or want to learn about him or to think about him, but you begin the process of centering your entire being, your life, around this reality. Here's the first experience. I like to call it the pickup. I want you to picture a cross on the ground. I used to have a cross that we used to have around here. It's, some, it's around here somewhere. There was a day I, I carried around the sanctuary one day. It's pretty heavy. I want you to picture yourself trying to pick up a cross, right? Think of like CrossFit. Aha, did you get that? Okay, you get it. Picture yourself, right? It's the pickup. The first phase, the first process of knowing that you have officially let Christ into your life. Not just trying to, to receive him, to avoid hell, but you have allowed Christ to now invade your life. It's the pickup. It's when you look at this thing, this cross, and there is a marriage that takes place. It's a marriage between your desire, meaning a part in you that's drawn to it, and sobriety, meaning to be sober. Now, to be drunk is to perceive things in a way that they aren't really. To live in a false world is to be drunk. To be under the influence 
is to perceive things in ways that they aren't really there. To be sober is to see things as they actually are. You can put in the word truth. In the scriptures, there's passages about their eyes being enlightened. There's a moment in your life where you will look at this thing that you've looked at a hundred times, whether it's the Bible or Jesus or the cross, you've seen it a hundred times, but this time you see it differently. It sobers you up. Have you ever been around someone who was drunk and they sobered up, right? What happened? Where have I been? I've been in a different world. This, I've never seen this before. There's a marriage between your desire for it and the first experience of seeing it as it really is. And so you can just imagine yourself. You, you pick this cross up for the first time. You've never carried it before. It's heavy. There's splinters with it. It's uncomfortable. If you ever carried a cross, I know this sounds really like self-serving. I'm, 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 I'm not bragging on myself. I have carried a cross multiple times. And you can't find a comfortable place for it. You just try to move it around. I'm going to carry it like this. I'm going to put it over my shoulder. It instantly begins to cut in. The edges begin to cut in instantly. The, the, the rough wood begins to just, oh, that's awful. But you didn't know that before you pick it up. And so the pickup is the first phase. All of a sudden, everything else in your life means something different because you have finally seen what it means to carry the cross. You finally have realized what it means to follow Jesus. You have realized that you cannot possibly live the same way ever again, believing that you are actually following Jesus. Because when you start carrying the cross, you instantly begin to experience pain. And that takes us to the second phase of becoming a disciple, of learning to the scoreboard of the faith, being faithful. In the carry, it's our persistence that marries his spirit. In this combination, this swirl, it's almost like I like picturing a tornado almost. What this does is it puts to death our idol, meaning Whatever used to be at the center of our life that wasn't the cross as it really is, that thing now must die. Our identity, meaning the person that we believe that we are, this is who I am. This is who I am, man. I'm, this is who I am. My family is very proud of being Hawaiian. It's who we are. You know, almost all of us when we played sports, there's these, you know, banners, flying Hawaiian. I don't even know what that means, but it's okay. It sounded cool back then, right? All these things that we held on to, this is who I am. I'm smart. I'm strong. I'm what, tall, if that's you. <laughs> Whatever it is, right? I'm a good parent. I love the Razorbacks. I'm an American. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a whatever. I'm a Baptist. Whatever those things were that you held on to because you believed that was who you were, all of a sudden, when you start carrying that cross, there's no room for that crap anymore. And the last thing that has to die when our persistence marries the Spirit of God, the woundedness which we carried. Our identity are things that we, that we 
choose to hold on to. I won't let go of this. This is who I am. I, you know, I, I'm a neat freak or, or I'm a creative or whatever it is that you think you are, right? I'm a musician, whatever you think you are. But your woundedness are the things that hold you. This happened to me in my life. I will never trust anyone ever again. And see, the reason these things have to die, all of these things are the things that are filling the space, the only space that Christ can fill. And we have to choose. Either we choose our life, meaning life as we knew it, the things that we wanted to hold on to, the things that we weren't strong enough or willing to let take to not have hold on us anymore, the things that we chose to worship. This matters. There's no space for that and Christ. You can't have it both ways. Either you lose this life in order to gain a new one, or you keep the life you have and you risk missing out on the life with no end. But the one thing about this phase is the word persistence. The crazy thing about this second phase, most people don't go past this phase. Because see, the Spirit is always present. God is always with us in the goodness of Christ. God is always with us, ready to lead us into healing and to freedom. But there's that other part of the equation, our persistence. What I love about this passage, Jesus does not say, if anyone would go to church every single Sunday, except for Labor Day, all year, they, they will be my disciples. If anyone would give at least 10% of their income, they will be my disciples. If anyone would dare volunteer in the nursery and the kids' church, they would be, which truthfully, it probably is them, right? Let's all be honest, right? It doesn't say any of those things that we keep score with. If anyone would go to a church of at least a thousand people, that's the one. Anyone with a bank account with $100,000 in savings, you're definitely going to make it. Or anyone who's broke, you're all going to make it. It says nothing of the sort. It says anyone who chooses to keep the life you had before you experience the cross. So if you stay persistent, if every single day, and, and here's the mental image, just picture yourself. Every morning you wake up, you change, you brush your teeth, whatever, and then you walk out the front door, and instead of getting in the car, you walk out, and here's the cross right where you left it. All right, let's do it. Every day. And every day you wake up, do the thing, you open the door, there it is. He didn't mention a Sabbath to holding the cross either, right? You, you, you don't actually get Sunday off every day. Have that picture. If you continue in this, if you stay persistent, you pick it up daily, day after day, the day when you were excited about it, the day when it was brand new, the day when it was exciting, the day when it was, when it was fun to carry the cross, the day when I got heavy, the day when you got sore, 
The day when you started to sweat, the day when it started to cut into your shoulder, the day when you couldn't lift your arm one day, the day when you, your knee started to hurt, the day when you were limping, or the day when it was raining, you pick it up every single day. If you get through this phase, if you persist in this phase, here's the last phase that's not mentioned in the passage. Here's the phase you only experience if you make it through the second phase. The one thing I love about this passage is it has a little kind of trap door in the back of it. Jesus kind of has his way with his teachings. He says daily, pick it up daily. I love that he doesn't say carry it day and night, day and night. See, there's a rest that comes. Who here has ever worked hard? I mean, like you've worked hard, so hard that when you go to sleep, you were out when your head touched the pillow. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a different kind of sleep. Do you know what I mean? You've worked so hard. You're so exhausted. You, you left everything you had in that day, and you went to bed with nothing left to give, and you just sink into deep sleep. And you wake up just feeling like a million bucks. There's a rest there. Here's the beauty of this. If you get to the first days and you do the pickup, if you stay in it and you pick it up and you do the carry daily, there's something that you learn to enjoy, and it's called the rest. So in the, in the rest, our exhaustion marries his goodness. And what, what happens here? is that in the place of this old idol that we used to worship in our lives, there's a new thing we worship. I like to call it a new God, meaning it's a God that you never knew. See, the reason that Jesus' response to the wrong answers was this process. He was saying, you're all missing it. Here is how you will finally begin to know me the way that I want you to know me. On the other side of the things that you thought were worth building your life on, the things you used to worship, on the other side of the things you used to hold so tight to, and you thought they were so important, on the other side of the things that you were so afraid to look at, to experience, to be talk about, to be healed from, you weren't willing to take those hooks off of you. On the other side of that, when you get healthy and whole and free, you will see me in a way you never could before. And you will also have a new identity. You once were defined by all the things you held on to. Have you ever talked to someone who once used to be a fan of one football team, and now they're a fan of a new team you know what I'm talking about? They're defined by what? What they hold on to. Do you know how many Razorback fans aren't Razorback fans anymore? Do you know how many Razorback fans are now Georgia fans? That was the most common thing. You know what? I'm thinking about like, you know, cheering for Georgia this year. I just look at them. That's not faithfulness. That's not faithfulness. False Christian. There you go. Blasphemous. Instead of being defined by the things you hold to, now you have a new identity. You now know who you are by the things that you've let go of. It's hard to understand this, I know, but. I pray that when you get there, and for those of you who've already been there multiple times, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
you know that this is a beautiful place to be in. And the last thing that you'll find is you'll find a brokenness. What's crazy about, about healing, you don't ever get free of the scars. It, it doesn't work that way. Those things that used to hold on to you, they used to, to um, define you. Those things don't ever just float away into the abyss. But you find something new. There, there's a place in brokenness that it creates a different type of dependency. It's almost like the experience of trying to hide a limp and then just acknowledging you have one and choosing to actually use a cane. This experience I had a few weeks ago with an interesting injury I had in the ocean. And I wanted to believe I could just hop up those stairs with one foot. I got it. Bleeding and everything. I got it. Get away from me. I was wounded. (laughs) But when I finally was like, you know what? Get over here, Nisa. You're going to carry me up the stairs. I was still broken. But now I was allowing myself to be dependent. The weight wasn't on me anymore. Right? And I want you to see something as I close this out. Watch team, if you guys want to head up as I kind of close these things out. I want you to see how this changes. In the first progression... In the pickup, I want you to notice it's your desire and your sobriety. It's a lot on your shoulders. You have to choose to start the process. In my experience, all the faces that kind of pass through my head of all the people I've sat with, and Christ was always waiting for them. But Christ was never going to, to initiate, to push them, to force them into the, you know, onto the operating table, if you would. It always starts with us. That's the burden that we face, initiating. When you get to the carry, you notice that the only thing that's really on us now is just to show up, to to show up every day. The work isn't being done by you. You aren't the one who makes yourself more Jesus-like. You're not the one who makes yourself more holy or less broken or you know, a better parent, a better friend, a better spouse, a better worker, whatever. You don't have control over that. But you do have control on showing up every day. I'm picking that thing up and yielding to the Spirit's work every day. To allowing that weight and that bruise that that thing is, is causing you, to allow it to begin to build muscle and endurance and strength and persistence inside of you. And if you notice, when you get to the last stage, when you get to the rest, you're not playing any role at all. The only thing you do in the last phase of being a disciple of Christ is just let yourself be exhausted. That's your job. Your job is to fall into the bed and be like, I got nothing left. It's an odd place to be, right? Because there's something about our inability to receive the goodness of God when we still have the strength to keep on ourselves. When I can still fix it and I can still do this and I, when it's still in our hands, we have this ability to ignore all the help of God, to miss the beauty and the tenderness and the presence and the goodness that God is ready to offer us. And if you haven't been in this process yet, if you haven't experienced what faithfulness is like, what it feels like to be a disciple of Christ, here's a warning. 
this process never stops. It just continues. The strain gets more. It feels heavier. It gets, it, it gets old sometimes. But the rest gets deeper. The discovery is greater. So Father, we just come to you and we ask, Lord, for all of us who are in this process, I ask that you would just give them the grace to continue. That you give us the grace to allow ourselves to be exhausted and to fall into your goodness. For those of us who haven't yet, I pray that there would just be a movement of the Spirit where we would sense and feel a desire and it would be married with a moment where we finally see clearly and we see you in the cross in a way we never have before.